Hello and welcome to the Tell Me If You Can podcast, a podcast where I have the honor of listening to and unpacking stories from different women. My name is Ogechi, your host, and today's guest is Whitney Hughes. Whitney, having studied political science and receiving a certificate in international relations and teaching English as a second language, worked as a Peace Corps volunteer in China. Later on, she moved into the field of education, working for a nonprofit centered around working with students and focusing on race and equity in education. She's currently studying to receive her master's in equity and diversity in education at the University of Nevada. Let's take a listen to Whitney's story. So how was it like growing up in Florida? What were some of your hopes and dreams growing up as a kid in Florida? Um, I definitely would say one of my biggest dreams was to get out of the humidity. It was just not conducive to my curly hair. But now that I live in such a dry place out in Nevada, I miss it because it's not thriving as much. Mm. Um, but uh, definitely growing up, I was always a toss-up between I wanted to either be a lawyer after uh, my working with my teacher, Mr. Winoff, in Law Studies 1 and 2, and then I made the gradual transition that I wanted to work in some type of public policy um, once I got closer to completing undergrad. Wow, that's so what transitioned you from law into public policy? There are some, you know, common themes with both, but there are definitely two different kind of careers. The main one was that the LSAT just whooped my behind, and I just could not wrap my head around the questions that they were asking, so I felt like I needed to redirect that energy of wanting to help people in a different way that worked for how my mind thinks and doesn't feel like as pressure that comes with taking a test like the LSAT, and so that was what motivated me to do an internship in Gainesville, working with the local government office. And then I did Peace Corps right after that and just kind of further emboldened my desire to work with people, especially um, in marginalized communities. I love that you had that focus even when you were doing an internship and then Peace Corps, which is such an amazing experience. Um, but you had that focus on marginalized communities. Why did you choose that demographic specifically? I chose that because when I went to China, my class or my group was roughly like 85, 90 people, and there was only maybe 30 people of color, 10 black people specifically, handful of LGBTQ people, etc. It just there wasn't a lot of representation of those of us who were considered not the majority or what my students um, or Chinese people in general thought an American 
is and should be to where that really made me want to think more about how my community is being perceived as well as how can I apply these lessons when I'm working with my students so they not only recognize people like me, but also they see the the issues that are going on in their own community and how they can work to lessen them or fix them if possible, if they so desire. I love that you brought up the topic of representation, not just representation on an international scale. So when someone from another country thinks about an American, they don't think of this like this very cookie cutter image of what an American is, but they can think more broadly about and including people of color in that imagery or that I that imagery or that um, ideal that they create for themselves, but also representation for students. And it's I think it's very important that people see themselves in roles and in places and spaces that they occupy. So I love that you were thinking, even while you were abroad, of how you can bring back this experience that might have been, I'm assuming, a little bit uncomfortable but you are trying to redirect it towards your passion and purpose as a career. So I think that's really um, cool. And in doing so, you've worked with students in different programs. One program was called Close Up. Can you tell us more about that? Wow, that was definitely a time. And I say that in the sense I've never, I've never been so invested in so many students in such a short period of time. Uh, with Close Up, we work with thousands and thousands of students every single year. Some of our smallest programs are only maybe 14 students. Some of our largest program are 300 students, and we're doing multiple programs at once. So you get to interact with so many students from all over the country and the world. And even though most of my students, I was only working with them for one week because we were together so often. So we would start our days at 8.30 in the morning until sometimes 11 o'clock at night. And we were just always on the go, going from museums to the monuments to memorials and having discussions about policy, political science, government, history, and how a lot of the issues that are from the past are not really in the past because we still see them in the present. And one conversation I always made sure to have with my students is, do you see how um, the representation, which you mentioned earlier, is still disproportionate, that the majority of our leaders in government are wealthy white men over the age of 21 who we perceive as heteronormative uh, cisgender and how those same expectations that at one time were basically written into the law, they're not written anymore, but you still see that. And what does that mean that we still see these these expectations and who can be considered a politician, who is in government, who is in power versus how many people are not, even though the country is changing so rapidly? I I mean, you can't even say that better than what you just did. A lot of people think about history as moving forward, which it does, and there are definitely changes that are that have happened for the positive, but we it's like you're moving forward with almost like a shackle or brick tied to your leg as you're moving and you're dragging themes of oppression or themes of um 
misrepresentation or not lack of representation along with you as you're trying to move forward and what would it look like if people were just open to the diversity that actually exists in the country and that continues to develop that's not going away but like you said the people that look like they should have power and we've seen this you know this year this past year so many people different types of people ran for office but while there are doors and glass ceilings that are being broken, there are still the norms that are maintained that this type of person is the quintessential politician or the quintessential leader or CEO or whatever. And I like that in this short time that the students had with you, they were able to not just see the city, but also experience kind of how this experience might reflect on wherever they are around the world. What were the age ranges of the students that you interacted with? So typically, um, students ranged from 6th grade to 12th grade. I did have a few 4th and 5th graders a couple of times, and we did have a specific program where we partnered with the ACLU, and they did have a college program as well. So I would say based on the grade levels, I think most students are like 11 and 12 in 6th grade up until maybe 17, 18, and then college students could be anywhere from like 18 to 21 since they were tip- they were typical aged uh, college students. So if you were talking with middle school age, would the program look the same or would it change based off of their age range? Or did you talk about the same topics, but maybe just tweak how you introduced it? We would talk about the same topics uh, because I'm a firm believer that we don't talk enough about this as a society or we talk about it so late in the game for it to have as much of an impact as it could. So what I would do is break it down in more digestible pieces for middle school students because they don't necessarily have the same life experience or consciousness of like what's going on in the world around them that high school students do. However, once we kind of broke it down, I was I would be amazed a lot of times at the, the the connections that middle school students could make, and I also had to be conscious of my own biases um, because the organization like we do preach um, advocacy and that students are taking on their responsibilities as citizens of this country and being informed, inspired, and empowered. And at the same time, is that I like I said, I had to catch my own biases and thinking like maybe this is too much for a middle school student or maybe this is not an appropriate conversation. But there's very few things I learned that a middle school student couldn't talk about and couldn't grasp and was inappropriate as long as it was grounded in fact. I found the same. I teach a class in my uh, school that I work with called Charity in Action. And most of my students are seventh grade, but this year I actually have quite a few sixth graders and they've impressed me a lot because like you said there tends to be that bias that they're so young and maybe they don't quite have the understanding but they still they absorb they may not have lived every part of the life but they absorb how other people have lived parts of life or have not had access to things and I've been impressed with how they bring up um, systems that are involved when it comes to uh, service and how people are needing needing access to services, what demographics are more influenced or disadvantaged than others. And these are things that you might think that they wouldn't understand, 
but they really get it. And once you, like you said, once you break it down for them, they can shock you. And it's just, it's inspiring because I think that keeps me on my toes and I'm sure it kept you um, hungry and on your toes as, uh, as you work with them. Definitely, definitely did. How long did you spend working at Close Up? So I started there January 2017, and then I was there until July 2019. So I think that's what, two years? Uh, yeah, well. Or maybe a year and a half? Yeah. <laughs> or maybe you said 2017, two years-ish, yeah. Um, and so what was your favorite, is there like a moment that was your favorite moment from that experience? Oh, uh, there's like quite a few that stand out. I would say my top three would be, my number one would be the thank you notes that I would get from my students um, unprovoked. Um, Sometimes students would, when we would do journals, instead of journaling, I had students writing thank you notes to me. Um, I remember my student uh, Ryan, he called me Coach Whitney. He said, "You say you like you talk me up, you coach me, you like you get me through it, and you listen." And and that was just not something I expected. I said, um, "This isn't what I asked in terms of journaling." However, I really <laughs> I appreciate it, and I I still have his note and dozens of other notes from students to this day. Um, another note that stuck out would be Mimi and Ariel's. They um, they had a program specifically for indigenous students, and they said part of their culture is that they have sweet grass that's braided and that they give it to someone who has inspired them. And they both gave me their wheat grass, or sweet grass, excuse me, and I just like was so amazed. Um, that program is a little bit longer, it's about two weeks, but the fact that you can work with young people for such a short amount of time and they get so much out of that relationship and just like reinforced uh, my own personal ideology that students don't care about how much you don't care about how much you know until they know how much you care about them as individuals. Um, exactly. and that's, yeah, and it was just like so mind blowing that that was probably like my biggest takeaway from that program. And then say my other top two would be when my students uh, from the Paiute Indian tribe of Utah, we had a meeting with the secretary of education with that office and they were just not letting go. Like they had the foot on the gas and were hitting them with question after question after question saying, why is it like this in my community? What are you doing to make it better for indigenous students, especially those who are in rural reservations because they don't have access to a lot of resources and they're pretty um, separated from the rest of the surrounding area. According to my students, some of them, they mentioned that the nearest Walmart is over an hour away by bus. Wow. Uh, And so that's, they were just kind of like bringing that context so they understood like how limited their resources were in general, but specifically how limited their resources were in regards to school and what they were able to do, the type of books they had access to, uh, whether or not they had access to Wi-Fi, because I have had some rural students who don't have Wi-Fi. They do have um, like regular internet, but then some of them are even so remote in Alaska that they don't have internet. Um, I'll say the last one would be when my students and I 
we went to the late uh, Representative John Lewis's office on Capitol Hill, and that was so cool, and um, especially because we had just talked about him, and they were able to see his office, hear a little bit more about who he was, and um, later that day, uh, we actually, we had an interaction um, with him where I I was able to, like, shake his hand and thank him for all the work that he's done in general and, like, for the state of Georgia, and I feel like those are definitely three biggest highlights from working with Close Up. Wow. That's, I mean... The thank you notes is definitely heartwarming, but it's also affirming that you're doing work that has an impact that you may never know. These students, 20 years from now, they might be on a podcast talking about you and their experience with you and how you saw something in them and sparked the fire in them to be mini advocates for themselves, for their communities, and for the needs of those that they encounter. And so those thank you notes are not only like kind, but they're also very affirming to the work that you do and they help and, you know, encourage you. People always ask me, well, the world is kind of a hot mess. (laughs) How do you stay hopeful? (laughs) Um, And I always say that young people that I get that opportunity to work with are why I stay hopeful because of those kind of moments like you mentioned. But I like how, um, um, you know, the Indian tribe in Utah and all of the different people that have been able to be encouraged to be advocates. It reminds me of community organizing. Um, and the best part of community organizing is not what you do for those individuals in the community, but it's how through you and collectively how you are able to create power. And so if power is supposed to only look like this type of person or this type of thing, collectively you're redefining what power really looks like in America and in communities. And I think that is amazing. But ultimately these are kind of like individual stories or small organizing attempts. And you wanted to go further and to tackle systemic issues. And these these experiences and these encounters through Close Up helped you um, become motivated to go back to school. So can you talk about why you chose your master's program and what hope that you have as a result of this? Okay, so like you mentioned, my students are definitely the biggest motivator for me to go back to school because I, along with them, I came to the conclusion that to really do what I wanted to do, I needed to get this master's degree, especially because a lot of them would say, I wish you could come back to school with me. I've learned more with you than I have all school year. And there were opportunities where uh, teachers that came on the program were like, if I had a contract right now and I could stick you in my suitcase, I would take you back with me. Um, So my master's program, how it came to this specific program was that there are only Based on my research, I was only able to find around five programs in the country that focused specifically on diversity and equity in education without being just like a concentration within a larger teaching degree. Um, So that was like a big thing that I didn't want to necessarily just make it a concentration. I wanted this to be the central focus of what I was here to do. So that narrowed it down quite a bit. And then um, what added to it was that my program – 
was really proactive in me filling out my application on time. They were very communicative and they worked with me, especially because being on the other side of the country, that at times there were just um, like time differences and um, my parents, my dad doesn't have a master's degree and my mom does, but she's um, in the, she was in the military. So that process of getting a degree is, yeah, it's very, it's so different. And my mom did her undergraduate and her master's completely online, but my mom has no idea like how FAFSA works for a graduate student or what graduate assistantships are or anything like that. And neither did my dad, even though he also has his bachelor's. So that was really helpful to have somebody here at my um, institution and my program specifically that was willing to like work with me. And even though like stuff wasn't late, they were like, hey, we've noticed that your application isn't finished yet. We're just going to email you the documents that you need. Just print it out, sign it, email it back, and we'll put it in your folder for you. So that like that connection was really what sealed it for me. And then of course the the cost of living is much cheaper here um, <laughs> than the other schools because I'm I'm bougie on a budget and um, Riverside, California, Boston, and oh no, um, yeah, those were just places that I just could not. I couldn't, the money, the, the math wasn't mathing, and I just couldn't no. make, I couldn't, yes, I couldn't justify going out there, especially um, with no job, because I drove out here from Virginia with just any, everything that could fit in my car. I didn't have a job wow. yet, I didn't have an apartment, and I was just like, on a whim, like, this is all going to work out for the best. Wow, I mean, first of all, kudos to you to having that determination and confidence, and also kudos to that school for really standing out enough for you to take that leap of faith and you know I think that everything aligns perfectly and sometimes when you have such a desire and you have a gift God figures out a way to make it work for you so the cost worked out even the humidity girl like you're you're dealing with dry heat now like you don't even have to deal with the high humidity the cost the dry heat the um the communication, especially as a graduate student, you don't want to have to deal with, like, shisty communications. You didn't suffer through that in undergrad, but the money you're paying in graduate school, you deserve, like, a school that really works for you and the exact type of major that you wanted. It all aligns together, and so that means that it, you know, it was meant to be, and I'm sure the hopes and the encouragement of the students helped push those alignments together. Um now that you're in this program, is there anything that you're learning that you think that more people, more educators or policymakers should know in a more tangible way? I will say that my program, in addition to like all of the information I learn on like Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, <laughs> yes. I, I think sometimes, you know, we don't give social media sometimes enough credit for the amount of things that you learned that you didn't know you didn't know. Um, one major thing is that not just to treat students as individuals, even though just as humans, it's it's inherent in us to want to generalize and, and put people in boxes because that's how our brain processes and prevents it from overloading. But it's also recognizing that when students are not interested or they are not engaged 
I think it's the responsibility of the educator to figure mm-hmm. out why. It, it can't just be that they don't care, that they're not that they're bored or maybe they don't like you. There's there's something at the root of that for you as an educator. I think that is, it's your responsibility to figure that out. You're also the adult in the situation. And a lot of times, just like adults, students don't always have the words or know how to say what's wrong or what's going on. And that goes back to really the it being necessary for us to build individual relationships with students because students don't want to talk and don't want to learn from people they don't know and don't like. Mm, Yes. Right now with a lot of schools and programs working virtually, that development of relationship is a little bit harder, but it's definitely still possible. Like you said, there's so many tools on social media. The amount of things that I've learned on TikTok is astronomical. (laughs) Every time I share something, people are just like, where did you get this? I teacher t- between teacher TikTok and like cooking and DIY there's so the resources are there and so you're talking about the responsibility of that engagement and the interest and the value of education or the value of a program for a student should not be on the student and you're correct it should be on the person leading the program or educating the child and you have to figure out why but I also wanted to add that your how to transmit this information or to create a a set of norms or respect or whatever may not be the how that needs to happen. And so it could have worked a thousand times before, but this is a thousand and one, and you have to be able to be humble enough and flexible enough to pivot. And if COVID has taught people anything, that pivot is the name of the game. And those that have not been able to do so have not thrived in this environment as well as people that are able to recognize that systems and processes need to change how you interact with people needs to be more intentional and um i've noticed that as an educator and i've noticed that as someone that volunteers with kids and i stare at those square boxes and at first i would get so frustrated like turn on your screens but once I realized <laughs> once I realized that I was still getting engagement from them, it just didn't look the way that I wanted it to look. They would answer the questions in um, Padlet, which is like a forum that you can create in the chat. They would just like talk but not put on their screen. And so if they're getting it, I don't care. Like I would love to see their faces, but the, the, that's my problem. And what I'm there to do is to educate them. And so I love that you bring that up. And I think that can trans- translate to not just education, but all types of interactions that people have, right. especially mm-hmm. during this environment. Yeah, definitely. I've had quite a few conversations with students just asking them, like, what do you need from me? And in what way do you need to receive this? Is it a Zoom call? Is it just an email? Mm-hmm. Do you want old school letters? Do you just want to interact on social media? Because I run my jobs, uh, social media, on Instagram, and Twitter, as I think, like, you're definitely bringing up a great point, is that we have to meet students where they're at, yes. and also ask them what works best for you, especially because we are in a pandemic, that level of empathy just has to be higher than ever. I love that you, yeah, ask, just ask that question, it's so intentional, and it actually encourages the student to then be learn how to be an advocate for themselves they have to think about their answer well what how do i best 
consume information? What system does work best for me? Do I get overwhelmed by the umpteenth email or do I prefer like a simple chat and maybe in the Zoom conversation or like you said, through social media, they have to then figure out for themselves and now you're teaching them a new skill on how to speak up for themselves and maybe the next teacher, they don't have to be asked. They can just say, listen, Mr. or Miss so-and-so, this is how I would like or like, could you please blah, 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 blah. And I found that with students, I can send them a million emails, but all I have to do is chat once. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have like our school chat, and it's like, oh, okay, so you're alive. That's great to know. Can you, did you read my email? And can you, oh, yeah, that's fine. And I'm like, so reply all is an option. And you kind of like walk them through it. But at the end of the day, you can accomplish what you need to accomplish rather than harping on the systems that. To be honest, email is pretty archaic to them if that's not how they normally communicate generally. Um, email, for some students, email is first used when they are in school, in high school. And so chat is the thing that they've been most accustomed to their whole life. So you kind of have to adapt to that. Definitely. So you talked about being an army or, well, Sorry, sorry. Air Force. Air Force brat. <laughs> I don't want to miss My mom gets so offended, but I, I won't tell. <laughs> yes, I apologize to your mom. Uh, Air Force brat, what was it like um, living in a household that had uh, military personnel or I don't know what her position was, so I don't want to misspeak, but... Um, you also talked about how she got continued education. So witnessing a parent studying or going through schooling and also being a part of a, having a career that for some people might be tenuous or dangerous or what have you, did it spark any interest in international relationships or relations or did that come by yourself? So in... Both of my parents are Air Force. My mom just did it a lot longer. My mom actually just retired mm-hmm. a few years ago. She did 30 years. She's Chief Master Sergeant, um, which I think only roughly like 1% or less of people ever achieve that rank. So I want to give her her props. Uh, so I'm, yes. sure she'll be listening. <laughs> I'm sure she'll listen. Um, I will say that it did spark my interest in international relations in the sense of my parents had always instilled like this, this level of service and that this isn't something that you just do to do. It's something you should want to do and do it well and that there is something out there bigger than you. However, my parents very well knew that like the military was not for me because I don't like authority very much. <laughs> so um, uh, Peace Corps was like a way to do that uh, because it is within – U.S. government, but it's more mm-hmm. so on like a voluntary, it's more people-to-people type than maybe in a position like formerly in the military. Uh, my parents, in terms of like studying, my mom actually started her undergraduate degree. She did about a year and a half or so before joining, and then my mom actually graduated when I was maybe half, I was halfway through my undergraduate degree. So I wasn't able to see her studying a lot of the time. But what I did see is like when I would call her, my mom would be like, I can't talk to you right now. I'm studying. I, I have things I need to do. So I think that was, that's been very motivating for me right now 
in my graduate program because originally my program was a high flex a combination of in-person and virtual and now because of the pandemic it's all virtual that it's it's just motivated like I saw my mom do this um, in some way shape or form for undergrad and then she did it again doing her master's degree while working full time so like if my mom can do it I feel like I can do it and I have the support for her from her and I did think about international relations like when I did my Peace Corps and my political science I actually have a concentration in international relations along with like a human international development humanitarian assistance minor but it kind of like once I finally went overseas I was able to look at the U.S. from like an outsider's perspective and I was like maybe I need to refocus this energy and fix what's going on at home before I try to aid somebody fixing what's going on in their own city or country that I am not even aware of because that's not my background. Wow. Yes, I like, I mean, and that's kind of the rub that some people have. You look at the world and you see this massive pool of possibilities and places that you can be of service. And I love that your parents instilled that service mindset and they acted out that service mindset differently through the military, but you did it through Peace Corps and now you're doing it through your, you've done it through your past positions and now you're doing it through this program. And I think that so many people um, are very, when they think of missionary um, mindset, whether it's either faith, faith-based or not, and whatever volunteer programs people have, they immediately think of saving others, saving the other around the world. But you don't need to, you don't need to go far to find that those populations, those people that are in the margins in the communities that you exist in, no matter how affluent or poor or whatever, there are people that are in the margins that don't have the same level of privilege or rights or access that you have. And the policies that exist in this country, there are more people that are needed by you and also people that will help shape the future policymakers and advocates, young people exactly. and old. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that is just as valued, if not, dare I say, more. Because um, <laughs> it, it gets forgotten and we've seen so many times every every political cycle, the focus is on the middle class and that truly infuriates me to no end. <laughs> and that's why we're holding the podcast episode. <laughs> but it's not because there's no value in the middle class, but we've defined the middle class as being the what is deserving of our attention, what needs to be saved. And by just saying their name thousand times more than you say lower class or those in poverty, you erase their existence. You erase their importance. Mm-hmm. And so when people think of places to go or think ways to serve, they don't necessarily think, okay, let me go to this zip code in like that's five minutes away from my neighborhood or this suburb or this inner city project or whatever, or this rural area or this um, reservation to do service and not service to be a savior, but service to when you leave, you've empowered and you've, you've transformed the hearts and minds and thought processes of people that are there and the people that affect those people's lives. If you're not doing that, and this is me on my, so I'm a service coordinator, so I'm very passionate about 
service, not just like for doing, but for like real purpose. Um, if you're not doing that and you choose to go to like Jamaica for a week and you like take your selfies and come back home, that's I mean, yes, you've done some good. So the the ethical argument of did you do good? Yes, you did good. But did you transform? No. And you've made you haven't empowered either. You've just done the act and made your you've centered it around yourself and not around those people that needed the assistance and the empowerment. And what I like about local public policy is especially with community organizing is that it centers around the population. You never the rule of organizing is never do for others what they can do for themselves. And so if you're doing for others and they're never involved in that solution or process, then you have not done a great job. Um, sorry that I went on a t- <laughs> tangent there. But it all made sense. It all came back. <laughs> yes. But I love, I just love that more people, like people like you need to exist. I, I love that more people are thinking about that. And you could have very well traveled all over the world and created policy. And there are people that do a great job at that. But we can't forget about the needs of our own country and our own areas. And like you said, there are places that you don't even know have great needs. And um, you're not going to know it if you don't try to investigate that in your own country. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's talk about a little lighter topic. What do you do for... <laughs> uh, we're a little heavy there. What do you do for fun? Um, as a student and, you know, pre-COVID or post-COVID, what do you do to unwind or maybe insert yourself into society in different ways? I'll say I definitely love reading I don't get to read it not I don't get to but I I don't have the brain space to read as much when I'm taking classes so I like to utilize reading and going to the local bookstores and getting as much as I can with like winter break spring break things like that I definitely love to read uh, fantasy and sci-fi in particular or some genres and I like seeing the diversity in the genre that's changing quite rapidly. Like, I love this mm. book. It's The Children of Blood and Bone. And it's essentially like Harry Potter, but for black people. And the context is, um, the um, the author is Nigerian. And their, like, magical language is actually what? Um, Yoruba. And it's like, it is so good. I, I'm, yes. I, I, don't, I know what her name is, but I am not going to embarrass myself and butcher it, but it's The Children of Blood and Bone, and it is so good. Um, okay, so like I'm going to add that to my list. I I would love to support, well, I'm Nigerian, so I feel like I have to have this on my list, but yes. I might, is it scary? Is it scary? No, it's not okay. scary. I, I don't do that I'm either, because I, I like to sleep at night. Um, <laughs> it focuses a lot the author talked about how this focuses like in a fantasy magical power like world but it focuses on like very real world relative like uh real world relatable issues like talks about police brutality and the militarization of the police um colorism because the most marginalized people just so happen to have the darkest skin coincidence i think not um yes it is it is so good and then it's um and everybody has like their own clan who has magical powers clan with a c not a k and um yeah. 
they yeah. are <laughs> and they are always like able to do like really cool things. So I'm a I'm a reaper and that allows me to bring people back from the dead. And one of the main characters is also a reaper and she basically brings she creates an army based on the dead and like brings their souls back to life and creates like a body for them, kinda sorta, and like leads an army. <laughs> wow. It definitely sounds like a book that I need to read. Yes, and you need to find out what clan you're in. Like, I'm a reaper. <laughs> you also be. Uh, there's one they do. They they do wind. There's some that do water, fire. One that can go like I can't remember the exact name, but they can like go into your subconscious and manipulate your dreams. Hmm. So like there, it is just so wide on like what you could possibly be for a clan. Um, and yes, we need to we need to spread the word. So please join us. It's not a cult, but it's um, quite fun. Uh, well, I feel like that's kind of how it was with Harry Potter and like different books. Like if you were not in the know, then you're just like, who's talking to you? Um, and so this is this is great that this book would have a following, and I need to add it to my list. Mm-hmm. I try to get my books if I can from Mahogany Books out in Southeast DC. Because uh, mm. it's a black-owned bookstore, and the lady who actually worked there actually recommended me and put me on when I told her. I was like, she's like, "What do you like to read?" I said, "Harry Potter." And she's like, "Well, this is for you. I have a book for it. boys. Do I have a book for you?" And mm-hmm. you're, and now you're like hooked. What else do you do for balance? I love to get my nails done. I have recently embraced like the brightest of neon colors with the yellows and the greens and the oranges and just makes me feel so good about myself because growing up I had internalized this idea that like long-ish bright colored nails were quote-unquote ghetto and and low Mm. class so I never did it and I as I've been getting older and unlearning the anti-blackness that I've internalized I've I just feel like this is just me kind of reclaiming a, one aspect of black culture and one aspect of my culture and saying, like, I'm going to make this what I want, regardless of what other people think about it. Um, yes. I, and I love that. I love that you're, like, reclaiming and unlearning some negative, like, stereotypes. Recently, I've just stopped. Um, not that I was really diligent about it, because in Maryland, there's also humidity. Mm-hmm. Uh, like slicking down my fro when I wear my hair in a fro, I have my little, you know, I don't, I don't do the swoosh that a lot of people do with their edges. Firstly, I'm super lazy. I don't have the time. Second, I, I like to normalize that you don't have to have like a perfectly flat and straightened, um, you know, edges and then this big puff. Like it just, I think that there's different ways that you can wear your hair natural. And so as great as it is to have the nice little swirls and designs and things like that, I don't lay my edges all the time. And for a long time, people, like, I was told that you kind of have to do that. Like, you can't have your BBs and, like, your little nip-naps showing. Um, And nip-naps are just, like, when you're – for those of you that don't have super (laughs) coily hair listening, it just means that around the edge of your hairline, it's – like super tight and curled it's not quite brushed out it doesn't lay super flat along with the rest of your hair and for me that's fine and if anyone has a problem with that well I've been able to be employed with nappy hair and I think that that narrative needs to disappear and more people that do that then the less there's like that stigma 
And I really do think sometimes some of the stigma is perpetuated within the black community mm-hmm. um, because of how previous generations kind of had to uh, like assimilate and they pass that knowledge down. But change, time changes and you kind of are, are more flexible in how you can express yourself in a professional way. And so those rules, so to speak, don't necessarily apply the same way. Yes, same boat. I'm in the same boat as well. I don't, I, not even that I don't want to leave my edges, I don't even know how. So I just let them <laughs> uh, be out, be free, and what y'all get is what you're going to get. <laughs> it definitely is a lot extra product, and so then I feel like you have to wash your hair even more. I only save that for special occasions. Like if I have a really nice hairdo for a wedding or whatever. But mm-hmm. um, now instead of part of the program... <laughs> program the podcast mm-hmm. where i ask guests a rose and a thorn a rose is a, a high point of your week or a month and the thorn is a bump along the way so what's one rose and one thorn i would say my rose would honestly be being on this podcast um this oh. i mean you know because it's like twitter um you know and so rose that this is on my bucket list for sure to be on a podcast and I just really appreciate having this opportunity to do it because I really was just speaking it speaking it into existence and I didn't expect it to hit but then you hit me back yes. and like, well actually I got you <laughs> <laughs> no sisterhood um, yes <laughs> so definitely this and I've already like started telling like my parents and some of my friends and be like okay oh, yeah. like, I'm making moves and once it's done, it's like y'all have to. You have to. You can't just listen. You have to follow. You have to do both. And so I'm like really yes. excited for this. And like I've enjoyed um, some of the episodes I've had a chance to listen to. And I feel like kind of like the vibe and what your goal is with this podcast just really aligns with me um, as well. So like this is definitely it to do something on my bucket list with my sorority sister that aligns yes. so well with who I am as well as with who you are because I've learned a lot about you during this last 46 minutes or so. And I was just like, wow, <laughs> what, what could have been had I known she was in Maryland when I was in D.C.? What could have been? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. That actually really brightens my week. It's been a rough week. It's only Tuesday, but... <laughs> That actually makes my week very happy, and I'm so thankful for that, those lovely comments. And if those of you that don't know, Whitney and I are sisters from Theta Nuzai Multicultural Sorority Incorporated, so we share a passion as a sorority and obviously as individuals for diversity, multiculturalism, and activism in our sisterhood and also in the world. So that is why we connect on so many of these issues. But also, I think individually, as you've heard, Whitney has a great life experience and a great gift that I can't wait to see how you grow. I don't want to take away from your thorn. So go ahead and share that thorn that you have. I thought if you, you were, have one. Okay, I thought you were going to kick the call and I was so ready to <laughs> No, I was so ready. I was just like, oh God, she's going to. Um, thorn, I would say it, it is, it snowed here the other day. I know a lot of people don't think of Nevada as a place with snow, but it does snow in the desert. Oh yeah. And, um, it is not my favorite. Luckily it's already starting to melt, but, um, the, yeah, the thorn is definitely snow and then I fell. 
Oh no! How much snow did it happen? <laughs> it was just a few inches, but I was trying to get, I was de-icing my car, and I was scraping, and I caught a slick patch, and I fell, and I just sat there for a second, and I was like, if I fall again, I'm dead. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna go back in the house, and you know, my car is just, I'm just gonna work from home tomorrow. Wow. I'm a, I'm a, yeah, a, well, as a Floridian, yeah, you're not used to it. And whatever time you spend in D.C. must not have been enough to get you through this little bit. Of, it's crazy, though, that it snowed. One time I went, uh, probably around this time, I actually stayed with one of our sorority sisters that lives in Nevada when I had a powerlifting competition there um, in Vegas. And it was colder in Vegas than it was in Maryland mm-hmm. in November. It was ridiculous. I was freezing because i'm thinking i'm in nevada it's like the hot desert that's cool but when it gets cold it gets cold and so i could totally expect you to be shook over some snow for sure yeah, especially when we don't have it we're having 70 degree weather oh my goodness no the the highs are high and the lows are low because typically whatever the high is the low is like 30 to 40 degrees so it is just so mm. dramatic here there is no middle ground and D.C. did not prepare me for that level of um, just such extremes. Because D.C. definitely gets cold. And when I was working in close-up, like, I was outside. Like, even though the federal government was closed, I was still working in that snow, rain, and slush. Um, but <laughs> D.C. was consistent. It was, like, 60. The high was probably only going to get to, like, 65. But here, to go from just to go from 60 all the way down to the 20s, and I'm just like, oh, my gosh. I want to go home. Yeah, that's too drastic. That's a lot. Your body cannot keep up with the ups and downs and ups and downs. Well, I want people to be able to follow along on your journey, and I wanted to give you the opportunity to share any exciting projects or things that you have upcoming for people to take part and follow along with. Um, One major thing that I... Another sorority sister, Yadaliz, and then some mutuals of hers, Moni and Q, that we are working on is a collective called The Brazen Collective. It's a creative and consulting agency, and our goal with that is that we want to help individuals and organizations to be more social justice-oriented, to be more equitable with their practices and programs. And so we are working on creating something where they could hire us to do these trainings, these programs, um, just to like to make to make bold moves, essentially, uh, with a particular focus on empowering the most marginalized of our communities. So black and brown women, indigenous women, femmes of color, uh, members of the LGBTQ community, low income, formerly incarcerated, currently incarcerated um, Mm. Just pretty much everybody you can think of that are on the margins, we are trying to bring them from the margins to the center and amplify their voice. And um, whether that's helping organizations and individuals and systems be more conscious of that, we definitely want to be proactive in, as well as the other component of that is the creative aspect is where right now we're working on because we're up and coming, is getting writers or poets or artists in general who are willing to contribute their um, sculptures, their photography, their writings, their stories to us so we can kind of create like an online platform to display their art 
um, in a different type of way that maybe isn't always so accessible because we have talked about how the people who get published are not people who look like us. So we want to create that opportunity to where you can get it out there. You can also put it on your resume and say, like, I've been published um, with the Brazen Collective. And I will recommend that people follow us on Instagram. It's Brazen, B-R-A-Z-E-N underscore collective, C-O-L-L-E-C-T-I-V-E. There's nothing up just yet, but it is coming. Um, We've just finished um, the manifesto. The website is in the works, as well as kind of like this quiz, and this quiz is going to basically help people figure out where they're at right now in terms of their consciousness of social justice and equity and where they can go based on where they're at right now. Um, Same thing we do with our students, meeting them where we're at. We're trying to meet people where they're at and help them build on that for a more equitable world. I absolutely Chef's kiss. I love this. I love the phrase margins to the center. Margins is like the word that I keep bringing up when people try to think of like, who am I supposed to be serving or caring about? Look into the margins. The people that don't always get a voice or visibility, love it, love it, love it. And I love the idea of having a quiz because now you can, rather than consuming all types of information and figuring out where to start, the quiz will help you figure out what you're lacking, what you you may already know, and then where you can grow from there. So I love this tool. I will link um, the Instagram down below in the show notes. And also, once you have that quiz or something set up, I will also link it below so that people can take a look at your website and um, interact with you and hopefully encourage other people to do the same. Thank you so, so much. How can people follow you individually on social and in the interwebs oh you know what that's right i'm a fun time i i I post some jokes here and there a good (laughs) name i do like that um on instagram i'm high society wit h-i-g-h-s-o-c-i-e-t-y-w-h-i-t people often think that's because i partake uh, for lack of a better word in the in the devil's lettuce or in the (laughs) in the in the marijuana and that's not that that's actually my old Tumblr name, and I was just oh, like, Oh wow, it is. It's my old Tumblr name, and I was just like, I'm bougie, uh, and, and I am bougie like on a budget, but um, that that's where that's where that came from. So I just don't want people to be confused. Uh, bougie on a budget. Oh no, food. that's fine. I love the I love the Tumblr reference. I think yeah, I, I know people still use it, but. Um, I use it still. I've actually made several projects for my graduate program using Tumblr, and my professors get a kick out of it. They don't fully understand it because they're like, this is before my time. But um, they allow me to use it, and they enjoy my memes, my gifts, and um, pop culture references. That is so... (laughs) That's so funny. I love it. Uh... (laughs) Um, well, I will add that information in the show notes as well. And Whitney, thank you so, so much for being on this podcast. It's truly been a pleasure for today. And I hope you have a great day and a great, amazing journey. I know you're going to kick butt in the world and I can't wait to see how you grow. Thank you. You're welcome. I should have recorded that for my morning affirmations. Darn. (laughs) Oh, that's fine. (laughs) You you should internalize it. 
Yes, screen screen grab that last part of the podcast and just replay it for yourself. <laughs> Will do. And thank you again for uh, creating this opportunity for me that I didn't know was going to happen. And, you know, manifestation, in addition to hard work, really does make things happen. Yes. All right. It sounds like Whitney's goal to make sure that her students were informed, inspired, and empowered transformed her own career goals. We see this in the decision that she made to go back to school to make a better impact on the systems that influence equity and diversity in education. You can tell her passion in this subject area just by the way she speaks on it and how she shares those experiences she had with those students. From DC to the West Coast, to working and speaking up for their own communities, those students truly were not only informed, but inspired and empowered to make change for themselves and others. It's also no surprise, being the amazing woman that she is, that she's now created, along with other women, the Brazen Collective, which works to bring bold decisions for organizations and individuals, starting with their quiz that allows you to decide and learn where you are at as it relates to social justice. I'll leave Whitney's information in the show notes below where you can follow her on social media and check out information on the Brazen Collective. If you'd like to hear more stories just like Whitney's, subscribe to this podcast, leave a review so others can find it, and if you haven't already done so, join our newsletter so that you don't miss any giveaways that will be happening at the end of the year. As always, have a great day in your own amazing story.